Let's be honest. How many times have you chalked up a relationship ending to bad timing? For hosts Nancy and PJ Heslin, the answer is a lot. It took living separately in Canada, the U.S., and France, two divorces, and 20 years for timing to work out. And when it finally did in the south of France, the couple discovered they had two different versions of their love story. We all do, right? But what if your side is not the whole story, and you have the journals to prove it? Keep listening to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, a podcast on love, relationships, and two lives in between. This episode is sponsored by relationship coach Jordan Gray. Jordan's work has positively impacted over 200 million people worldwide, and he has helped more people get married than he can count. You can go to his website, jordangrayconsulting.com, sign up for his incredibly insightful and value-dense emails, and also when you sign up, you get a free book of 50 powerful date ideas in the process. Nancy and I love Jordan's work so much that we think you will too. That's jordangrayconsulting.com and get your free book today. Welcome to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. I'm Nancy Heslin. And I'm PJ Heslin. Oh, PJ, I was waiting for you to jump in with some sort of enthusiastic announcement like last time. Well, if I may, I've been thinking of a couple of podcast characters I want to try out. Oh, I was thinking more along the lines of one of your podfessions where no, you break no. the news of something via all our listeners. Nope, just some characters I want to try out. So here's character number one. This is the... Do I have a choice? No, you don't. This is the annoying little brother that sits beside you in the back of your parents' car. Mom, Nancy's bugging me. And this is character number two. This is the cop on a police thriller who's not that great at his job. Chief, I got nothing. Now, this is the last character. (laughs) PJ, we've already lost the audience. I mean, at this point, do we need to keep going? Yes, this is the last character. And this involves you, okay? This is the uh, tour, a European tour guide who uh, is just over his or her job, okay? So your role, you're going to have to say, hey, what's that building? So I'm going to point to you. Hey, what's that building? Uh, Who cares? Some rich guy built it. Ooh, look, gelato. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't even know where to go with this. comedy gold but i do actually have some real news that you are well aware of i do want to say thanks to our new sponsor jordan gray consulting yeah we're really excited about this to have jordan on board it's a very sort of curated sponsorship because you know when we started doing this podcast in january the goal wasn't to have this type of sponsoring at all, actually. Our goal was just to get noticed for our manuscript. But the great part is, is we love what Jordan is doing because he is talking about relationships and love and making those types of connections stronger, which, you know, is, I think, what we're trying to do, no? Yeah. I mean, if Jordan Gray had been around when we first started dating, perhaps our relationship wouldn't have been the type of relationship that was a, an emotional <laughs> roller coaster where people are stuck upside down for five hours and need to be rescued by a helicopter. Okay, but truth be told, PJ, I know it took us 20 years to get together, but I don't think I would change anything. Nope. I really have had so many unbelievable opportunities and as much heartache as I have had waiting for things to kind of come together on a personal level, I consider myself incredibly lucky the way things worked out. Yep, and I definitely wouldn't have done so many ultra marathons thinking about you. Yeah, I think that I was a lot of your the fodder for all that stuff, <laughs> definitely. right? I gave you all those crimes. Definitely. Um, but I'm also excited because I just did Ant Patrol, and thumbs up, Peach, there's no ants behind our bed. Oh, thank God. 
I have this obsession about creepy crawly things. And a week ago, I don't even know what made me look, but there was something that made me look behind the bed and there were maybe a dozen ants just down on the floor and a few climbing up onto our pillows, which freaked me out. And so anyway, I put a PJ on ant patrol. I've been on ant patrol when I'm home. Everything about in our house is all about ants right now. But while I was kind of pulling the bed away from the wall, there's all of our, what do you call those, like plastic storage units yes, sir. <laughs> shoved under there that I don't know about other people, but I kind of overstuff them. Because I just, I'll just throw one more like piece of paper in there or one more thing and I'll organize it another day. Is that, would you say how that's how our system is under yes. the bed, PJ? It's very high tech, very expensive, uh, big, giant plastic tubs. Well, it goes back to living in small spaces, right? I mean, that's what happens. You got to find storage where you can. Anyway, I was pulling all this stuff out and because the lids don't even fit on some of the containers, this book fell out and I thought it was an old contact uh, address book, you know, back in the day where you handwrite everything. And it turns out it's my journal from 1987 of the first time I visited France. You're a real Indiana Jones. Oh, stop. So the trip was an opportunity. I was just shy of my 18th birthday uh, in high school and a friend of mine was in the art department and they were offering this two-week school trip to to France. So a week based in Nice touring around and then the second week in Paris. And just before the trip, my friend that invited me to go on the trip broke her foot and she couldn't go. So I ended up still going. It was a really, I think there was only about a dozen of us that went. And yeah, it was my first visit to France, my first everything. And it was, I thought it was quite humorous to read some of the notes I made especially because some of the words that kind of stick out are, you know, people are really snobby, people are rude. Some of the first, um, what's, what's the word? Impressions. Impressions, impressions Thanks, is PJ. the word you're looking for. Glad you're here. <laughs> um, my first impression is on the flight with Air France. This is what I write. There was this French woman sitting beside me. Talk about style. That's what I want. Seriously. Except that she was anorexic and smoked like a dog. Remember the days oh. where you were smoking back on those flights? You could smoke on buses, Back in the day. I remember university, you go from Toronto to... to People were smoking on the bus? Yeah, you'd smoke on the... There was a, they had a smoking section on the bus. It was the back of the bus. Front of the bus, everybody, no smoke. <laughs> no, You're fine. No, no smoke. cancer. You're fine. But it was the first time I visited Nice and Cap d'Antibes, Cannes, Monaco. Uh, what did I say? Monaco. Everyone was a tourist. It doesn't look like anyone really lives there. We went to the casino. It was just wealth. It was unbelievable. That hasn't changed. And so as Paris, I went up to Paris in the second week, and all I kept writing about is how much I missed the sun in the south of France. So a little bit telling of things that were going to happen in my life. So that was 1987, two weeks here. PJ, when was your first time you came to France? My first time coming here was, uh, would have been 1988. Uh, I, after I graduated from university, I spent a year working to save up money to come here to travel for as long as I could. And my money lasted for six months. And I came here and I just love France. I mean, you had a stereotypical image of what France was. And when I came here, it absolutely fulfilled that stereotypical image. It was just gorgeous. I was traveling around France in the late summer, early fall. And the same thing, I went down to Cannes, Monaco, that sort of stuff. Uh, I wasn't that enthralled with the where we live now because it was so expensive. You know, you couldn't really stay at a half-decent hotel. You had to stay at a hostel. <laughs> that, was, that was so much money I had back then, and still do. 
Yeah, you're a motel guy anyway. <laughs> exactly. What are you talking about? Yes. And I, I have a distinct memory of going to Monaco and uh, having lunch there one day. Lunch was literally buying a sandwich at a, a patisserie and seeing a yacht that had a um, helicopter on it and just being like, oh my God, that is All, the are you wealthiest sure? in the world. Even back then? Yeah. I distinctly remember it. And now that we live here and you see that, it's kind of like, well, that's what an average yacht does have. They got a submarine and a helicopter and they live like a James Bond villain. And yeah, going to Nice, Nice I loved. Cannes, same thing, found that kind of expensive. But what I loved was I went to the Loire Valley and I haven't been there since. And I basically just sort of walked up Every now and then I'd hop on a train, but that was gorgeous. And that's one of those things I still have to do. One of our vacations, I'm going to bike up and down there again, because that was gorgeous. It was lovely, beautiful. But would you want to live up there or do you like living down here? That is a hard thing to say. I mean, you throw a stone in this country and it's gorgeous where you want to live. But yeah, you know, for me, for, for me, it's more the people. Like I need to have a social element. So if we lived in the Loire Valley... I'd have to try to make friends again and blah, blah, blah. And that's exhausting at this age. I love your adjective of blah, blah, blah. I haven't heard that for a while. But what would you say is one of the things that hasn't changed in all the years that, you know, since you visited to now? Two things struck me with just when you were reading that. Number one, the smoking. You still see people smoke. I don't think they probably maybe chain smoke as much as they used to, but you'll see like a mom picking up her kids and she's got a cigarette in her mouth. And I don't think that really happens anymore in North America. And the other thing is, is that it's much more laid back here. You know, the, the last week I had to get my uh, bus pass renewed. That's right. I have enough money to buy a bus pass. We're bus pass rich people. <laughs> and it's a yearly bus pass. It's one of the expensive ones. So I went to get it renewed on the Saturday and in North America or Canada or the U.S., you're used to, if that's a you know, public functioning office, it'll be open. If they say, hey, we're open from Saturday from 9 until 2, it's open. That's like a law almost. Here in France, you know, it's like, that's ah, Saturday morning. I bet. Good chance it's probably going to be closed. Sure enough, I go down, ferme samedi. <laughs> and it didn't frustrate me. It didn't. You never get frustrated. Like, eh, I'll go get a coffee and a sandwich and. There we go. I'll go back next weekend. And I think that's the most difficult thing for expats who live here to, to deal with, is that they're just like, well, how could that be closed? What am I going to do now? Yeah, they don't really cater to the service industry. No. The thing that I noticed then in 1987, my first visit to France and then now living here, is I think about once or twice a year, the sort of lack of kindness really gets to me. And I don't really think about moving back to Canada, but there's a moment where I'm like, I'm just done with this. Just you walk into a store and they look at you like, what do you want? Right? Yeah. I haven't even said anything or done anything. And even like yesterday I was swimming up along the cap and it was odd because uh, on a weekday at that time, I don't expect to have guys fishing. So I wasn't looking out for their lines. And while I was swimming, I could smell cigarette smoke and I popped my head up and I noticed that on the rocks... As I was going, there was two guys there fishing. I almost went into their line, swam around it, thought, okay, I'm over it. And there was a guy hiding behind and I did get caught in his lines and they get mad at me. And my first reaction all the time is what I always say is, I'm sorry, you know, je suis désolé. Because I just realized like, I don't want to fight. I'm in nature. I don't want this sort of argument. But the French always yell at you first and then ask questions later. It's always not their fault. And I don't even think, you know, it's probably not just the French, but a lot of the times when you have those sort of encounters, it, they, they just come at you. 
And you have two choices. You can either just fight back, which for the first 15 years of living here, I always just screamed back. It's a great way to practice your French. And the second thing I do now is I just kind of go, yeah, 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 it's my fault because I don't care. I don't want it to upset my day. And they're not taking it personally and they're not going to think about it. So, you know, I'm not going to either. Yeah, I get overly sarcastic with them. Like even this morning, I walked the dog and where we live, there's no lights. There's these crosswalks and it's the law in France. Like if you're crossing the street and it's a crosswalk, cars have to stop. Cars never stop here. So I was waiting, waved, you know, hey, I'm going to cross here because it was very busy. And the car stops. This guy's really annoyed. And he just starts swearing at me in French. And I was just waved to him. And I was like, oh, bonjour, merci, monsieur. And then he was even more furious that I wasn't getting angry at his anger. I yes. love living here. I, mean, I really am not saying, oh, the French, but there's just some things that are very uh, characteristic to living in different countries that when you grow up in Canada, uh, it's not the same thing. So the two things that really stood out in the, the two-week journal of my trip to France in 97 was one, that even back then I was a little bit what we call uptight. So one of the things I wrote was, I better learn to calm down or else I might get an ulcer. I'm only 17, right? I worry about myself because I'm always nervous. I have to learn to relax more. Well, I think I'm a little better, but even... A little better. Even, but a little better. Even last episode, I made a mistake in something I said. We were talking about the square meters per person, and I said per... I misread it, and I said per capital, and I meant to say per capita. And then after it went out, the episode, I said to PJ, should I sort of issue like a correction? You know, as a journalist, I... I want everything to be factually correct. And then PJ was, I don't remember what your reply was. The word is blase. <laughs> so I think I've always been that way. But the, but the other thing that really stood out for me reading this for the first time in you know 30 years was that when I'm on the flight home, I'm actually writing in this journal. And I said, I can't wait to see my family, but I wish I could just go home for a short visit and then leave again. I really love being away. So it was telling that, you know, maybe I was going to go away again, and I did. But my family was always a big part of everything I did and always supported these sort of adventures that I went on, encouraged me even before. I, I think I was 12 or 13 when I went on my first French exchange. So this leads us to our theme this episode. Do you try to live up to your family's expectations? PJ. <laughs> yes, the... The only expectation I had growing up was to be quiet while dad was watching golf on the weekend. Otherwise, a coffee table would fly across the room. <laughs> that was it. As long as I didn't do that, you're okay, kid. You and I are similar in so many ways, but when you look at our upbringings in terms of parental guidance, we are complete opposite. Let's give two examples. Okay, one is when we're kids. Every summer, we would go up to my cottage. My dad would have, I think, two-week summer holiday, and he would spend the entire two weeks driving 14 of us from 8 a.m. till the sun went down. In our boat, he would take each of the kids uh, for a spin on water skis or tubing. You know, he would stop and have lunch and do things, but he never complained. He would even pick up our friends when we were like 10, 11, 12 from Toronto drive with them on a Friday night because we spent the whole summer at the cottage and he would be coming up on weekends. He would be driving up with these kids he didn't even know. He never complained. And only now, as an adult, do I think, you know, when you have summer holiday, you want quiet. And all he did was drive us in the boat and had noise around him all the time. 
I just think my dad, when we were kids, I don't think he just really enjoyed being around kids. I just, I think he found it too noisy, too annoying. So, and he never, I shouldn't say never, but rarely did anything. So I remember one time my mom forced him to take us to this little fall fair in the little town that we were living in. And he was just miserable. He just, he was grumpy all day. So then we get in the car and we're going back home and uh, there's all eight of us in the car and just, you know, I eight of us and dad. And so one by one, we're like, uh, thank you, dad. Thank you, dad. Thank you, dad. And it's about the sixth thank you. And he just turns around and goes, oh, for Christ's sakes, stop thanking me. And then there's a beat. And then you just hear, sorry, dad. Sorry, dad. Sorry, dad. And he just was like, oh, God damn. But you really knew he didn't want to go to the fair? Oh, you could tell he was grumpy all day. He was just, this just a face of like, I just want to sit at home and watch golf and drink beer. <laughs> All right. Example number two, going to university. My parents spent a week before I moved into my house because I was on a short list for residence. So I ended up renting a house with a bunch of girls. They spent an entire week with me redecorating my room, painting, doing wallpaper, getting all the things I'd need for the year. It was amazing. I mean, we obviously I was a little uptight and I probably caused them a lot of grief, but they like they just loved me so much and they wanted it to be perfect for me. Yeah, so when I left for university, number one, didn't know where my dad was living at the time. And I left for university, duffel bag of clothes over my shoulder. Bye, mom. Mom just braises up from bed. Bye, honey. See you later. But your mom really loves you. Of course she does. Not enough to take me to university, but you had good parenting and I had two... Um, I don't know, maybe teenagers trying to raise us that were kind of like, I don't know if I want to do this job. I would say, though, that my parents weren't just good parents. My parents, I think I won the lottery. I mean, I mentioned this before that I'm adopted, so I could have been put anywhere, to be honest. And uh, I just loved my parents. And I spent a lot of time from a young age trying to always be appreciative, show them that I love them. I think, I don't know if I mentioned this in a earlier on when we started the show, but I would think I was like 12 years old when I was watching Donahue. Do you remember Phil Donahue? Of course I do. It was a PA day at school and I was home and there was an episode on teenage pregnancies and it was the boys and the girls talking on the Phil Donahue show. And one of the boys was 15 and he got his girlfriend pregnant and he said, you know, the one thing that this has taught me is how I really want to tell my parents I love them every day because they've been so supportive. And I don't really remember the pregnancy stories, but I remember that resonated with me. And I spent a lot of time really working on that relationship with my parents. But for me, I just put all this pressure on myself because I knew that there was a hidden part of my personality that I was always afraid of, you know, because drinking was a, you know, obviously was some kind of issue for me. And my family didn't really drink. PJ, did your family drink? Oh, my family drank. (laughs) My family drank like it was a sport. Uh, but I think that it was more of a cultural thing. It wasn't like there were a bunch of crazy people. They were crazy people. But yeah, both sides of the family, drinking was definitely part of the culture, the, the whatever. Um, my Well, as you know, my dad kind of left at 15, so there wasn't a lot of involvement with that. My mom, is as nuts as she kind of is, God bless her, she was always supportive of whatever we wanted to do. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were also, you know, when we went to university, we paid for it. So if it was like, hey, mom, I'm going to clown college. She was like, well, that's awesome. You're paying for it. So be the best clown you can be. 
And I ended up being a clown. <laughs> I married a clown. Yes. But did you ever feel that, okay, now like I can prove to my folks that I'm this or? Nope. Nope. You just always did your own thing. Yeah. We, we, I, well, I always just sort of did my own thing. And that, a lot of that was because once we were 18 and out of the house, it was known, well, you got to take care of yourself. You got to get a job or go to university or go to university and get a job and pay for it. So my, yeah, like I said, my mom was supportive, but it wasn't like I felt, oh, you know, if I become a lawyer or if I do this or that or the other thing, my mom would be really proud of me. I never felt the need to sort of prove to her that I was doing something that she should be proud of. My grandparents were more sort of that role, that, that parental role. And I, and I always kind of thought, oh, I don't want to disappoint them. But they, same thing. They were always supportive. They were like, yeah, just be a good person. Looking through all the notes I have and stuff, there's a lot of times where I feel like, let's say, a failure. I don't even know what that means because nobody in my family ever treated me that way. So I don't know what that voice was. Did you ever feel like that? No. And this is something that the in decades of our relationship, I always thought, how could you possibly think that you, Nancy, are a failure? You're a wonderful person. You take care of yourself. You've chosen a career path that is difficult and succeeded at. It might not make you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but you make a living at it and you're wonderful. Yeah. You're a wonderful person that I love. All right, cut it out. <laughs> but I'm talking about like the 1995. Like I'm talking about in my 20s, like my late 20s and my 30s. I mean, I was starting in the music industry. I mean, at this point in our story, it's the fall of 1995. I'm on my third job in nine months. Although this one is actually paying me. You know, the other two, well, the first one was an office job for a recruitment company and I was the bilingual director. The second one I quit because uh, I was working for that magazine. It was a startup magazine in the music industry, which was a sales job. And, you know, that wasn't really paying me anything. But I was clever enough that one of the guys I met to sell ads to for the magazine, he owned this CD manufacturing company. And I was really, really impressed by him. You know, some people have that charisma and he could clearly talk about the company, the future of the company, why he was doing it. And so I actually called him up and asked him for a job. And as luck would have it, there was just an opening at that time. It was a really small family company. And so I was the receptionist and that was fine. I was so excited to have like my foot. I was getting paid steady money. It was a great area. It was working with artists. You know, I loved all that stuff, but I felt like I had all this education experience. I could speak French. And I felt that maybe my family was like, what are you doing? God, you're too hard on yourself. Oh. You had a job and you were taking care of yourself. That's what you should do, especially as a young adult. doesn't care if you're a receptionist or a waiter or an intern at a law firm or a CFO of a company. Well, we'll find out in the next episode how working in the music industry just sort of fed that second side of my personality of, you know, drinking and going out and getting up to no good. But I really did struggle with that because I loved my parents so much and they were just everything to me, even though I knew I wasn't always being honest with them. And in fact, you know, I've said this before, but having my mom read the manuscript that we wrote was incredibly difficult for me because it was confessions of my life that I hadn't shared with really anyone other than other than you, Peach. So it took her a while to process it because also it's, you know, years and years and years ago, and I don't think I am that person anymore. And I was really worried that it would change the way she sees me, but I had to let it go. And so do I live up to my family's expectations? This is what I'm actually thinking about at this time in, in the story. You know, you're always the kid and your parents are always the parents when you kind of grew up in that environment. So you go back to those roles. 
I think the differences in our parental relationships uh, are summed up best this way. You phone your mom every single day, and my mom never phones me back if I phone her. And how often do you phone her? Eh, Seasonal. All right, so let's take a look at the journal entry. It's fall 1995. I'm 26. PJ's 30. And what's the date? It is September 29th, 1995. And I'm imagining this is, once again, another beautiful fall day in Toronto. Ever since high school, I've always been drawn to guys who seem to live on the wild side. No wonder you were in love with me. (laughs) I was living on the wild side. Brother. Because I think that's who I am, rebel girl. Guys who tend to party or drink or whatever, and I've continued to to entrench myself in the same environment because that's all I think I'm worthy of. What's wrong with dating a guy who likes to party? I don't see anything wrong with that. But I'm learning that's not the case, nor is that how I want to be seen by others anymore. I'm certain that is why I have, I have always had this huge conflict within myself because I can never surrender to the other side completely. I know deep down that I'm my mom and dad and living a two-faced life is not a respectful one. When I look back four years ago to the, to the year in France and other places that I went to, I see a very mixed up kid. At the time, I believed I had it all together and was very strong, but my weight gain alone would indicate a very different story altogether. I did not leave Canada on good terms with myself or my family was running away from things that consumed me while I was away. I suppose I figured by leaving the country, everything would nicely tie up and be finished with, but instead I gave myself a huge internal bleeding. Mom and dad's disapproval seemed easier to grasp on another continent. I'm such a different person now, and that is my only wish that people can see me at this point in my life. I was still sorry. I was still so messed up. So even that sounds funny to me. I think as I grow older, I'm much more aware of my parents and my decisions. So many times when I was with Ben at his cottage, I thought, this is not who I am. It was the what's wrong with me syndrome. I want a relationship with someone I don't want to change. Did you ever feel like that, PJ? What's wrong with me? Has that Um, that question ever entered your mind? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially during this period of my life where I'm doing stand-up and you had so many friends that had traditional lives and were happy, and I'm still sort of even though I was happy in making a living, I was living month to month, and I would think, yeah, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just sort of get it together to make a career of myself, you know, career of myself, career for myself, and of myself? Uh, okay. On that note, I felt daring, thin, and confident. So I called PJ and met up with him a couple of weeks ago. Now, I've never thought thinness brought me confidence. So yeah, another way we're different. Uh, like a sandwich. It was actually fine. He seemed a lot more relaxed than I've seen him, and it felt good to spend a little bit of time together and not feel pressured that he was the one, even though I was, that everything had to work out. It was even a greater sensation to tell him that's how I was feeling. Of course, I was hoping that he'd call, but he didn't. He's not interested in me, but for the first time, things are going really well, and at least he didn't ask me for his bracelet back. Ah, PJ, the good old bracelet. We haven't introduced that yet to the story, have we? Nope. But maybe I'll introduce it as one of my characters. Okay. Spontaneously, be a bracelet. <laughs> That's the sound of a bracelet on a wrist. <laughs> oh, I'm so shocked Saturday Night Live didn't grab you while they could, PJ. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and share the link with friends. This podcast is a spinoff of our manuscript. Check out nancyandpj.com. 
a huge thank you to our sponsor, Jordan Gray Consulting, and to Isaac, Alyssa, and Dustin at Life's Tough Media. In our next episode, Nancy ends up after hours with a band on their purple tour bus while PJ heads to Montreal to headline at the Comedy Nest.